Hello, hello, my name is Okara and I'm just happy to be here. I'm super excited to be recording another episode. Finally, I'm trying, I'm trying. I, that's why I didn't make any promises on when these would be updated. <laughs> um, so this episode is going to be more of the mystical, the fantastical. Um, we're getting into some sci-fi. Um, so we're talking time travel we're talking relativity, we're talking a little bit about the morality of time travel and how that becomes a bit of a manipulation um, to those around you because, you know, once time is uh, dabbled in, everyone is involved because, you know, butterfly effect. Um, So there is no isolated way to manipulate time. You will always be affecting billions of other people. (laughs) Um, So we're going to do a little reading of um, a steampunk tale that I've gotten from a book and we'll talk a little bit more about it. It's an anthology of steampunk stories. Um, Steampunk is um, a sci-fi genre that kind of marries some modern ideals of technology and um, ethics and politics and relationships with um, steam-powered mechanics, some modern technology, and um, that vintage romantic aesthetic that um, maybe a little Victorian, maybe a little bit of that saloon, um, wild, wild west kind of feeling, all of that married with the steampunk machinery, the modern ideals, and a little bit of modern technology as well. So it's a sci-fi genre I happen to adore. Um, So speaking of time, um, we're going to have a full mental mukbang reading this story, but I do want to open up with a new poem that I've written. Um, It's called, uh, what's it called? I Can Tell Time. I need to tell you. I don't know what to tell you. Some things beg sharing, but since time is always told first, I'm sat with the phone staring, thinking, I can tell time. Too soon? Too soon is a stab in the dark, a testy wire to clip before it sets off your heart. There are things one may begin to impart, a start, sowing of seed, Fertile soil tilled with want, need, a desire to plant something new. A beloved flower, or maybe a weed. I need to tell you, I don't know what to tell you. Over and over we hold fast to that which we know to be true, but what if we set it free? Rather than frozen behind that closed door, scent of the one we adore, still lingering, thinking, I can tell time. Too late. Too late is smoke rising from the debris. Thick with regret is the scene of defeat. This is the sentence never to complete, though the sentiment bleeds into the very soil beneath our feet. I can tell time. Is but a necessary thread between us all, but some things can't be timed, and thus we call it falling. I can tell time. In my mind, I can rush it forward or turn it back. I can tell time, but before the moment's past, I can tell you I think I may love you, so there's that.
All right, so for our mental mukbang, we will be reading from Steampunk! Exclamation point. An anthology of fantastically rich and strange stories. It's a scholastic no- uh, novel, or it's a scholastic work. Um, edited by Kelly Link and Gavin J. Grant. Um, the story we are looking into today is called Some Fortunate Future Day by Cassandra Clare. It has um, a Shakespeare sonnet at the opening, um, but I haven't quite fully digested that sonnet yet and how it relates, so I'm going to exclude that for now. Getting right into the story. Time is many things, her father told her. Time is a circle, and time is a great turning gear that cannot be stopped. And time is a river that carries away what you love. When he said that, he looked at Rose's mother's portrait, hanging over the fireplace mantle. He had invented his time device only a few short months after she had died. It had always been one of his greatest regrets in life, though Rose sometimes wondered whether he could have invented it at all without the all-consuming power of grief to drive him. Most of his other inventions did not work nearly as well. The garden robot often digs up flowers instead of weeds. The mechanical cook can only make one kind of soup. And the talking dolls never tell Rose what she wants to hear. Do you think he's ever coming back? says Ellen. She means Rose's father. She is the dark-haired talking doll, the saucy one. She likes to dance around the room, showing her ankles. She arranges the sugar cubes in the tea service to form rude words. Perhaps he is taken to drink. I hear that's common among soldiers. Shush, says Cordelia. Cordelia is the gentle doll, red-headed and quiet. Ladies should not speak of such things. She turns to Rose. Would you like more tea? Rose accepts more tea, though it is now more like hot water flavored with a few leaves from the garden than real tea. She ran out of real tea months ago. There had been a time when food and tea and household goods were regularly delivered by the grocer's boy from a nearby town. It was weeks after he stopped coming that Rose got up the nerve to put on her bonnet, pick a few coins from the box on the mantel, and walk alone into town. It was then that she realized why the grocer's boy had stopped coming. The town was flattened. Great zigzagging cracks ran through the streets, steam still pouring out of them. Great sinkholes had opened in the ground, houses half tipped to the side. She wondered how she hadn't heard the destruction, though her house is more than a mile away. But then airships flew overhead almost every night, dropping incendiaries into the nearby forest, hoping to flush out spies and deserters. Perhaps she simply was used to it. She reached the edge of the one great pit and stared down into it. She could see the top of the church spire sticking up, nearly reaching the top of the sinkhole. All around was the smell of decay. She wondered if the townsfolk had gotten refuge, had taken refuge in the church when the Wirums came. She'd seen pictures of Weirum fighters before, enormous, riveted copper tubes covered with incendiary bombs. She decided that her father was right. Towns were dangerous places for young ladies on their own. We're very happy here, aren't we? 
says Cordelia in her teeny doll's voice. Oh, yes, says Rose, sloshing the tinted water in her cup. Very happy. When Rose was eight, her father bought her a tiny, excuse me, her father bought a white rabbit as a pet. At first, she took good care of it, stroking its long, silky ears with her fingers, feeding it lettuce from her hands. One day, while she held it in her arms like a baby, letting it nibble a carrot from her fingertips, it sank its teeth into her skin, not knowing where the carrot ended and Rose began. She screamed and dashed it to the floor. She was immediately sorry, but it was no use. The bunny was dead, and Rose was inconsolable. That was when her father showed her the time device. It had been almost six months since her father left and went into the war. Though she hasn't been marking the calendar, Rose can tell that she's outgrowing her dresses. They're too tight in the bosom now and too short. Not that it matters when there is no one to see her. She goes, on, she goes out to the garden in the morning to gather ingredients for the cook. The cook used to make all sorts of things, but now it is broken and only makes soup. Whatever you put in it comes out in a sort of thick black gruel. The garden robot follows her. In fact, it does most of the work. It digs along, even furrows, and plants the seeds. It crushes the bugs and other pests. It uses the calipers to measure the vegetables and fruit for ripeness. Sometimes out in the garden, she sees smoke in the distance and hears zeppelins overhead. She finds other unusual things, marks of the war in the sky. Once she found a metal log torn off, lying among the carrots and vegetable marrows. She told the garden robot to get rid of it, and it dragged it away to the compost heap, leaving a trail of dark oil behind. Sometimes she finds chopped pam dropped pamphlets showing pictures of starving children or great metal hands crushing innocent families, but the words are in a language she doesn't understand. This time she finds a man. The garden robot notices him first, whistling surprised like a tea kettle. She nearly screams herself, it's been so long since she saw another living creature. He looks odd to her as she grows closer. He is collapsed among the rose bushes, one shoulder of his blue uniform. So he is on her side. Not an enemy soldier. Dark with blood. He is moaning, so she knows he isn't dead. The rose's thorns have scratched and torn at him, and his blood is the brightest, reddest thing she's seen in six months, much brighter than the roses. Bring him into the house, she says to the garden robot. It clicks and whirs around him busily, but its calipers are sharp, and when it tries to close them around the wrists of the soldier, he bleeds distressingly. He cries out, without opening his eyes. His face is very young and smooth, the skin almost translucent his hair white, blonde, and fair. He is wearing an airship crewman's goggles around his neck, and she wonders what battle in the sky he fell from and how far he had to fall. Eventually, she shoes the garden robot away and approaches the soldier carefully. He has an, in excuse me, he has an energy strife, he has an energy raffle strapped to his belt. She undoes it and gives it to the robot to dispose of. Then she sets about the task of freeing the soldier from the tangled briars. His skin is hot when she touches him, much hotter than she remembers human being, human skin being. But maybe it's been too long, and she doesn't really recall. 
She half drags, half carries the soldier up the stairs and into her father's bedroom. She hasn't been in there since he left, and despite the ministrations of the cleaning robots, the room has a dank, fusty smell. The heavy wooden furniture seems to loom over her as she suddenly has become very small, like Alice in the children's book. She gets him into the bed somehow and under the covers, using scissors to cut away the bloody parts of his uniform, bearing his shoulder. He fights her weakly like a kitten, and as she does as she does it, she murmurs, hush, and that it is for his own good. There is a wound through the upper part of his shoulder. It is red and swollen and smells of infection. Dark red lines radiate out from the puckered edges. Rose knows those lines mean death. She goes into her father's study and pulls down one of the boxes from the mantel. It is slippery, polished wood from the inside. She can hear a chittering noise, as of birds. Back upstairs, the soldier is tossing in her father's bed, crying out in unintelligible words. Rose wishes there were someone else with her, someone to hold him down as she opens the box and lets the mechanical leeches run over his body. The soldier screams and thrashes at them, but they cling tenaciously. They fasten onto the, onto the wound and the skin around it, their half-translucent coppery bodies swelling and darkening as one by one they fill with blood and fall to the side. When they are done, he was whimpering and clawing at himself. Rose sits down beside him on the bed and strokes his hair. There, there, she says. There, there. Slowly, he calms. His eyes flutter open and then close. They are a very pale shade of blue. He's wearing copper dog tags around his neck. She lifts them and examines them carefully. His name is Jonah Lawrence, and he is a second lieutenant on the airship Sky Witch. Jonah, she whispers, but his eyes don't open again. He's going to fall in love with me, she tells Ellen and Cordelia over tea, after the soldier has fallen asleep. I'm going to nurse him back to health, and then he will love me. That is how it always happens in the books. That is wonderful news, says Cordelia. What does it mean? Love, stupid, says Rose, annoyed. You know what love is, don't you? She doesn't know anything, says Alan, Ellen, rattling her teacup with amusement. After a pause, she says, neither do I. What do you mean? Rose sighs. Love means someone wants to be with you all the time. All they want is to make you happy and give you things. And if you go away from them, they will be miserable forever and ever. That sounds terrible, says Cordelia. I hope it doesn't happen. Don't say that, says Rose, or I will slap you. Do you love us? Ellen asks. The question hangs in the air, and Rose is not sure how to answer it. Finally, she says, Cordelia, you're so good with your needle. Come with me, I need you to help me sew up his wound or it won't heal. Rose sits and watches while Cordelia's tiny hands sew up the wound in Jonah's shoulder. The sleeping potion she's giving him, given him earlier is keeping him quiet, though Ellen sits on his elbow anyway, just in case he might wake and begin to thrash about. He shows no sign of it, though. Rose begins to wor worry that perhaps she's given him too much and killed him. The idea is very dramatic. What a tragedy it would be, like Romeo and Juliet. When he finally wakes, it is just them alone in the room. 
It is nearly dawn, and watery light drips through the window panes. His eyes flutter open, and Rose leans forward in her chair beside the bed, her book and lap rug sliding to the floor. Are you awake? she says. He blinks at her with his clear, light eyes. Who are you? I am Rose, she tells him. I found you in my back garden. You must have fallen from your airship. I was shot. He puts his hand to his shoulder and feels the stitches. He stares at her. You did all this, he says. You healed me? She nods modestly. No need to mention Ellen's and Cordelia's contributions. They're not real people anyway. He catches at her wrist. Thank you, he says. His voice is hoarse and sweet. Thank you for saving my life. Rose is pleased. He's beginning to fall in love with her already. After the rabbit died, Rose sobbed for hours in her room. Her father came in at last. She remembers his shadow falling across her bed as he said, Sit up, little Rose. There's something I want to show you. Her father was a big man, with big, capable hands like a gardener or a plowman. In one of them he was holding an object that looked like a telescope, or, no, she thought, as she sat down, as he sat down beside her, it was a watch, for it had a face with dials at the far end. When your mother died, he said, I built this. I thought I could go back, tell her not to go out riding that day, but I have never been able to make it. Take me back more than a week, and by then she'd been dead for years. He handed it to her. You can go back if you'd like, he said gruffly. If you turn the dials like so and so, you can return to the time when your rabbit was still alive. Rose was delighted. She took the device from him and turned the dials as he had shown her to return her to that morning. Then she snapped the device shut. For a terrible, terrifying moment, it was like falling down a well, everything hurtling upward and away from her. Then she was in her room again, the white rabbit in its cage, and she was no longer holding the time device. Delighted, she ran to the cage and opened it, lifting her rabbit out and cradling it closely against her, squeezing tighter until it went still in her arms. She loosened her grip in dis disbelief, but the creature was as limp as a rag. She began to sob again, but this time her father came to see what was wrong, and she didn't tell him. He didn't remember having shown her the time device, and she was too ashamed to ask for it again. Jonah is shocked to learn that Rose is alone in the house, aside from the servant robots. He asks her endless questions. Who is her father? He's never seen him, but he thinks he's heard his name before. How long ago did he leave her? When was the town destroyed? How does she eat, live, survive? She brings him soup on trays and sits with him, answering his questions, sometimes bewildered at his surprise. It is, after all, the only life she's known. In exchange, he tells her about himself. He's only 18, the youngest second lieutenant in the army. He lives in the capital, which she has always imagined as a place with beautiful soaring towers like a castle on a hill. He tells her it's much more like everyone rushing around everywhere fast. He tells her about the library, where the shelves of books rise high into the sky and you can reach them on float floating steam-powered platforms. He tells her about the magnetized train that runs around the top level of the city, from which the clouds can be seen. He tells her about the dressmaking automatons that can sew a silk dress for a lady in less than a day, and deliver it by pneumatic post. 
Rose tugs at the too tight bodice of her own plain cotton, childish dress and blushes. I would love to go there, she says, looking at him with the enormous eyes. To the capital. It's amazing what you've managed to do here, with the little you have, he says. How lucky I was to fall from the airship so close to your doors. I'm the lucky one, she says, but so softly, maybe he doesn't hear. I wish you could meet my sisters. They would be much moved by your heroism. Rose can barely contain herself. He wants her to meet his family. His love for her must be serious indeed. She looks up so he cannot see the delight in her eyes, and she catches a glimpse of glittering eyes watching from a panel in the corner of the room. Cordelia, she thinks, or Ellen. She'll have to reprimand them about their spying. You mustn't spy on Jonah, she says to Ellen. They are having soup in a tiny bone teacup. You must respect his privacy the way you respected father's. But where will he live when your father comes back, she says Cordelia. He will have to be put in a different room. When we are married, we will live in the same room, Rose says grandly. That is what married people do. So he will move into your room. Ellen's face is all squashed with disbelief. She probably is thinking of Rose's tiny bed, barely big enough for one. Not at all, says Rose. We won't be staying here once we're married. We shall go to the capital and live there. There's an appalled silence. Finally, Cordelia says, I do not think we will like the capital very much, Rose. Then you can stay here, says Rose. Grown-up ladies don't play with dolls anyway, and someone must wash the house until father returns. She means the last she means the last to cushion the blow, but the dolls don't seem comforted. Cordelia sets up a wail that pierces Rose's ears. She hears running steps in the hallway, and the door flies open. It is Jonah, dressed in her father's clothes. Dear God, he says, is someone being murdered in here? It's just Cordelia, says Rose, and turns to both of the dolls, her face white with rage. Stop it! Stop it! They're both silent, staring at Jonah. Rose is staring, too. She hadn't realized how tall he was until now. He's so handsome, even, in her father's clothes, that it hurts her eyes. What are those things? he demands, pointing at Cordelia and Ellen. Nothing, she says hastily, standing up, thinking how childish he must think her, having tea with dolls. Just toys my father made me. The look on his face does not change. Will you come walk with me in the garden, Rose? he asks. I think... I could do with some fresh air. She hurries to his side, not looking behind her to see if the dolls are watching. They walk among the carefully planted rose flower beds, and Rose tries to explain. It isn't their fault. They tend to get upset over the little things, she says. I've never seen anything like them, says Jonah, catching up a stone and skipping it across the surface of the pond. Automatons with real reactions, real feelings. Yep, they were prototypes, says Rose, but my father thought giving them personalities was more trouble than was worth, so he never sold the design. Your father, says Jonas, Jonah, shaking his head, must be some sort of genius, Rose. What else did he invent? She tells him about the garden robot and the cook. He does say he had wondered why there never seemed to be anything to eat but soup. She considers telling him about the time device, but she cannot bear to tell the story of her rabbit. 
He would think her cruel. All the while that she talks, he nods his head, considering, amazed. They won't believe this in the capital, he says, and her heart soars. She has been almost sure he was planning to take her back with him when he went, but now she is completely. And when do you think you'll be well enough to make the journey back? She asks, eyes cast modestly to the ground. Tomorrow, he says. The blue jay is calling from the treetops, and he raises his head to follow the noise. Then I must prepare a special dinner tonight, to celebrate that you're well. She takes his hand, and he looks startled. That sounds very pleasant, Rose, he says, and turns so that they are walking back toward the house again. His hand slides out of hers. It doesn't seem intentional, and Rose tells herself that it means nothing. They're going away together, tomorrow. That is what matters. When Rose returns from the walk, she finds Ellen in her room, sitting on her bed. Cordelia is on the window sill, singing a tuneless little song. When Rose comes in, dragging an empty trunk from the attic, Ellen scrambles to sit on it, kicking her little heels against the sides. You can't go away and leave us, she says, as Rose determinedly pushes her aside and begins to pile in her clothes. Yes, I can, says Rose. No one will take care of us, says Cordelia desolately from the window sill. Father will come back and take care of you. He isn't ever coming back, says Ellen. He went away and died in the war, and now you're going away too. She can't cry. She was never designed for it, but her voice sounds like weeping. Rose snaps the trunk shut with a final sound. Leave me alone, she says, or I'll turn you both off forever. They're silent after that. Rose dresses with care in one of her mother's old gowns. Lace drips from the cuffs and the hem. She goes down into the cellar and finds the last of the preserved peaches and a single bottle of wine. There is dried meat as well and some flour and old bread. There's no use in saving these things anymore, now that she's going, so she fries vegetables from the garden with the dried meat and puts them out on the table with fine china, the wine, and the preserves. Jonah laughs when he comes down the stairs and sees what she's done. Well, you did the best you could, he says. It reminds me of the midnight feast I used to have with my sisters when we would raid the pantry at night. Rose smiles back at him, but she is aware of the eyes watching from the shadows, small shapes that dart and flicker when she looks at them. Cordelia and Ellen. She mentally damns them both to the pit of hell and goes back to smiling at Jonah. He's all pleasantry, filling her wine glass and then his own and proposing a toast to their winning the war. Rose has forgotten what the war was about or who they're fighting, but she drinks the wine nonetheless. It tastes dark and bitter, like cellar dust, but she pretends to like it. She drains her glass and he fills it again with another toast. This one, he says, is for women like her. The war would be won already if all damsels were as valiant as she. She discovers that even though the wine tastes bad, it fills her with a pleasant glow when she drinks it. On the third round of toasting, when the bottle is nearly empty, he stands up. At last, he says, a toast to some fortunate future day, when, perhaps once this war is over, we might see each other again. Rose freezes, the glass halfway to her lips. What did you say? He repeats the toast. His eyes are bright, his cheeks flushed. He looks like a recruitment poster for an airship pilot, seeking young men, hardy, handy, and brave. But I thought I was coming with you to the capital, she says. I thought you were going to bring me with you. He looks startled. But, Rose, the way back to the capital is 
through enemy territory. It's much too dangerous. You can't leave me here, she says. No, of course not. I'd planned to alert the authorities when I returned, and they would send someone for you. I'm not callous, Rose. I understand what you did for me. But it's too dangerous. Nothing is too dangerous if we're together, says Rose. She thinks she may have heard someone say this in a novel once. That's not true at all. Aunt Jonah seems agitated by her refusal to understand. It would be much easier for me to maneuver without worrying about you, Rose. And you aren't trained for anything like this. It just isn't possible. I thought you loved me, says Rose. I thought we were going to the capital so we could get married. There's a horrified silence. Then Jonah stammers out. But, Rose, I, I'm already engaged. My fiancé, her name is Lily, I can show you a chromilograph. Chromolithograph. His hand strays to his throat, where a locket hangs on a chain. But Rose has no in interest in this girl, this fiancé with a flower name like her own. She stumbles to her feet and away from him, even as he moves towards her. I think of you as if you were my own little sister, Rose. She runs past him, runs up the stairs and into her father's study, slamming the door behind her. She can hear him calling out for her, but after a while he stops calling and there is silence. The sun has begun to set outside and the room is filled with reddish light. She slips to the floor, her head in her hands, and begins to weep. Sobs rack her body. She is aware of the touch of hands on her hair and someone stroking her back. Ellen and Cordelia surround her, petting her as if she were a crying child. She sobs for hours, but they don't tire. It is Rose, finally, who wearies first. Her tears slow and stop, and she stares at the wall, vacantly gazing into nothingness. He was supposed to fall in love with me, she says aloud. I must have done something wrong. Everyone makes mistakes, says Ellen. It's all for the best, says Cordelia. I never liked him anyway, says Ellen. If only I could do it again, Rose says. It'd be different this time, more charming. I'd make him fall in love with me and forget everything else. It doesn't matter, says Cordelia. Dawn is lightening the room. Rose gets to her feet and goes over to her father's desk. She rummages through the drawers until she finds what she is looking for. Then returns to the window. Looking down from here, she can see the front door, the garden, the meadow, and the forest in the distance. The dolls clamor around her legs like children, but she ignores them. She waits. She has nothing but time. The sun is high in the sky when the front door opens and Jonah steps out. He's wearing his uniform, patched at the shoulder where she cut it away from him. He's carrying nothing in his hands, taking nothing from her house as he, as he goes. Nothing but her heart, she thinks. He sets off down the path that leads from the front door down to the meadow and to the wider road beyond. He stops once, a few steps from the house, and looks back and up, squinting into the sun. He raises his hand in half-hearted wave, but Rose does not respond. This Jonah, this version of him, no longer matters. It doesn't matter where he thinks he's going. It doesn't matter that he doesn't love her. She's going to change all that. He drops his hand and turns away, and Rose looks down at the time device. She spins the dial back one day, two days, three. She hears Cordelia call out to her, but she snaps the device shut 
and the doll's voice is lost in the whirlwind that picks her up and spins her around, carrying her backward through time. In moments, it is over, and she is breathless, sitting once again on the windowsill. The dolls are gone, the time device no longer in her hands. She anxiously looks out the window. Has she guessed the time right? Did she miscalculate? But no. Her heart leaps up with happiness as she sees the man staggering out of the forest and dropping to his knees in the meadow. Trailing blood behind him, he begins the long, painful crawl toward her garden, where she will find him again. So... (laughs) That was a lot to digest. So I just wanted to go and touch back on a couple things. This story to me comes off rather dark. So first we have um, obviously the steampunk elements we talked about. So there's zeppelins flying above. Um, a lot of mention of copper. Copper is a huge part of steampunk, largely because of um, the machinery being steam powered, um, and copper is super conductive. So it just it just works that way. So copper is mentioned a bunch of times. Um, so I get really excited. <laughs> I get really excited about steampunk. Um, also, my mom. Side note has always called me Copper Penny growing up because of my skin tone and like it's got red undertones to it. So she's always called me Copper Penny. So copper is an absolute thing for me. I get all my stones wrapped in copper. (laughs) Um, So there's a lot of copper mentioned, um, what the soldiers are wearing, um, the watch, I believe, the time device, um, and probably a lot of the machinery that her father built before he left. Um, so we've got that steampunk feeling. We have it set. Her clothing, as it's described, you can tell it's in a more vintage fashion, probably Victorian. Um, there's some kind of war going on, which is almost constant in steampunk. It's like a constant theme, war, um, because they take it back to times when there is a war going on. So usually it's referenced in a storyline just because historically that's where they're placing the steampunk stories um and so then we also have (laughs) uh we've got the little dolls that's the first moment for me where it becomes a little dark because this town has been demolished she had no idea her dad's gone away to war and um now she's got these two little automatrons that are very very emotive they've got reactions to human um moods and all of that good stuff so that's the first sign of a little bit of a um ominous feeling for me when i was reading it the first time because a person especially a young person such as rose growing up and only having these two automatrons to talk to who only have a programmed personality they don't adapt they react but they don't adapt and they don't change or grow and so she's stuck basically in this she's stuck in her childhood she has no chance of becoming anything but a child no matter how old she gets or how much she grows out of her clothes because she's alone she's alone she's barely surviving um thank god for this garden she's eating you know this whole time um but there's just these two dolls to talk to all the time they react to her 
they sort of are suited to her as a child because they were built when she was a child. So we have no idea how old she is. Um, we know that her visitor is 18 maybe. So, oh, he is, she tells, he tells her she's 18, he's 18. So we don't know how old she is. We're assuming close to him, maybe two or three years younger than him tops. Um, but we have no idea how old she is. We only get the feeling that she's a child and never will be anything but a child. Um, so that's the first sign of like, oof, this is a little dark that I felt <laughs> reading this story. Um, and then we have the first mention of the time device. Again, pretty dark. She's got this bunny rabbit. She ends up killing it by being petulant, throwing it to the ground. And her father gives her the time device. Not only does he give her the time device, he takes a moment to tell her that he built it to try to go back to stop his mother, her mother from dying. And it didn't work. He could never get it timed right. He could never go back to the right time um, because by the time he had started building it, it had been years since she died and he could only go a week into the past. So that's awful. <laughs> that's terribly dark and sad um, that he should build a time machine and it basically still be too late. Um, I think it's super ironic, um, but fitting as far as the relativity of time that, you know, by the time he, by the time he finished building a time travel device, it was still <laughs> impeccably and devastatingly, it was still too late, so to speak, to go back and alter the timeline at all. Um, so he gives her the time device. And so, <laughs> She gets the time device and is so excited she ends up killing the rabbit again. My God, if there's another way to show the intense um, childishness of this person, the intense sort of, uh, there's a lot of entitlement that comes from her. That we don't get to talk about their life before the war or their life before her father left, but there's just such entitlement that she's got. So much um she's oblivious. <laughs> she's been living oblivious. I mean, even to the fact that her own town has been desolated, like decimated. It's, it's, she's oblivious to all kinds of things physically and, um, emotionally oblivious. And so she ends up killing the rabbit again. That is insanely, um, poignant to me and also not really off brand for, um, steampunk or really sci-fi in general. Sci-fi does tend to get a bit dark as far as um, humanity and morality and ethics. You, they, the themes usually are pretty dark um, just because the juxtaposition of steampunk for me, I think, the juxtaposition of steampunk itself between modern and romantic past, um, you're, you're always getting little tinges of one into the other. Um, so that's a big moment for me reading this. Um, then she decides, of course, like a child, having read a book at some point, doesn't even bother to remember the title, <laughs> that she's going to make him fall in love with her, not to see how he feels or get to know him or allow him to know her, just gonna make him love her, period. 
and to these dolls be damned, this house be damned. I'll let my father know when and if he ever comes back, we'll figure that out, but I'm gonna make this dude love me and we're gonna go get married because that's what I want, period. <laughs> She's such a brat. <laughs> um, and so then we get to the dolls being creepy and weird about him and not really trusting him, I don't think. Um, they don't really have a sense of her character, I don't believe, but they do sort of just play this ominous role of it. They make you feel like you don't want them to go away and get married and you're not sure why. Um, as a reader, for the most part, it feels to me like I don't want them to go away together either because she feels like she would ruin his life, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> um, so now flash forward to this uh well she's telling him everything but of course not about the time device mm, because she's shady <laughs> um so we're flash forward and he's discovering the inventions that are all around him that have helped her survive he's now super curious about who her father is um and you think that that's where we're going to go you think maybe he'll take something or you know try to get a patent on some of the things that he's seen um but um, they're just chatting at this point, and then the bomb drops. Oh, you're not, you're not coming with me, hun. <laughs> you're not. This is not happening. So she becomes to me rather like a villain or an antagonist, and him being the protagonist that we just happen to not have any background information on. But she becomes very much an antagonist at that point because at that moment when he says no. And she goes off to cry for a while. The solution she wakes up with in the morning is to use the time device and force it again. Never mind what that alters in the future. Never mind how um, that implicates her morally. Let's talk about that. Okay. So this is where I mean the morality, the, the ethics of time travel. If you ever see a sci-fi movie, show, or read a sci-fi book, whenever time travel comes in, no matter, excuse me, no matter how surreptitious it is, no matter how common it is, there's always this sense of gravity about the ethics of time control and, and you know, what is right and wrong about it. Uh, it's usually like, you know, do it sparingly don't do it at all really but do it sparingly because it changes things it alters everything that is a constant throughout any sci-fi time travel it affects everything and everyone and the people who have time travel at their disposal are meant to be taking it with grave responsibility and of course we see rose here just flippantly deciding I'm just going to use it because I want to get what I want never mind that he promised to come back and get her never mind that he's going to go ask about her father to find her father never mind all of that she simply wants to use it for her own gain and of course whenever we see this it gets ugly really quick and that's that's the tricky morality and ethics of time travel is it right to do something like that 
I mean, in and of itself, in this case, it's a very blatant case of manipulation. She wants him to do as she, as she wishes. She wants him to feel the way she wants him to feel. She wants him to say what she wants to hear. Because of course, as mentioned before, the dolls never say what she wants to hear. So she's thinking he's saying all the right things. And then all of a sudden, oh, he tells you no. And you're going to fully manipulate the situation. Take him back three days and then watch him crawl, drag himself back into your garden. Even though you knew he'd be there, you could have easily run downstairs and helped him since you brought him back to this time in the first place. It's just, it's just reeks of manipulation and, and villainry. Like it's just villainous. (laughs) to take control like that unbeknownst to someone else to make them do what you want them to do. I think the ethics are very clear in this case that what she's doing is wrong. The way she's going about this is wrong. She never told him about the time device. He is unaware and he's been made a victim to time. Like he's been made a victim of time, literally. Um, So that just... Oh, I don't know. This story is just really, really dope to me. It's really cool to think about these things and especially the dark tone that it has to it, like very, very Black Mirror tone to it, which is why I think we all love that. Black Mirror could easily have been a full steampunk show, honestly, but they went so far into the future. They weren't dealing with the uh, the balancing of any different aesthetics or time periods. They just went way into the future. But the themes and the way they approach them are super similar. Um, so Black Mirror Black Mirror is something that if you don't know anything about steampunk or sci-fi, Black Mirror is probably something that you've heard about that will bring you closer to understanding this genre. Um, I absolutely love sci-fi, so that's why I really wanted to do this and to like get into it and talk about it. Um, I like talking about time in general, just, you know, the relativity of it and how time isn't really technically a thing to me it's just that we started to we wanted to measure our own moving forward and we wanted to measure how far we've come so we started talking about time as human beings so there it was but time itself only exists when you're measuring it you know what I mean (laughs) like time is only time if you're measuring it otherwise it just nothingness and on and on and on and on and on we go (laughs) so I could honestly talk about that for ages but I won't because I've already read you an entire freaking short story (laughs) so um if you have any responses to this please use the um the podcast email um jh2b here at gmail.com oh excuse me Nope, that's wrong. I'm going to link it in the description (laughs) so that I don't get it wrong. You can always, always comment on any relevant pictures on the Instagram page. Or if you just know me personally, you can ask me anywhere, anytime about these episodes. Because I would love to hear what you guys have to say. You know I'm trying to get you to talk back to me. (laughs) Um, I'm going to not go into any other segments today. I'm just going to go right into the closing because I've taken a bunch of your time. And so in closing, 
I would love to read um, what has become, probably while they were typing, it became the Equinox Prayer um, by Seed Lin. You can find them at on Instagram at S-E-E-D-L-Y-N-N, um, Seed Lin. I have a little bio here. As a digital storyteller and imagist, Seed Lin promotes a listing practice that situates the vulnerable story as a metric of personal and community health. Crafting meditations to drive group sense-making, Seed emerges the present, urgent, and necessary narratives threatened most by oppressive views and myths, ultimately examining how the ways in which we remember ourselves shapes our shared future shapes possibility itself. For 15 years, Seed, Seed has exhibited a gift for unfolding and remaking these myths, forging precious and personal, personal graces when contact, in fact, results in confrontation. To date, Seed and his team of storyographers have seen their method, methodologies applied in contexts of health promotion, intervention, and policy and advocacy, narrative justice, journalism, research, and education. And I do believe Seed Lin is a fellow Hoosier. I think they are from Indy as well. So I'm now in closing going to read this beautiful, beautiful meditation written called Equinox Prayer. Change the sheets, drop the drapes, Pull the sky in and then some. Get tall, get green. Speak gently to the sun. You can say now, it's okay now, to come out and to play now. Tell heaven, you just playing, but for real, where you at? Pack the salt up for now. May the tires match the season. File that grievance with the city. For those potholes, get paid. Remember, you are worthy of change. You are changing. And this is the gift from the dream to the dreamer. Keep coming, arriving like a future. You can hold this, open it with your teeth like a child. So it spills. Lay soil in your heart. Water that. Water that. Now water that. Wait. But the garden is enough. And it's not. Both are true. Only you in a mixture. Ask yourself question. Flowers send themselves. Give yourself flowers. Privilege permission. Contact part of you, including what that person met down. Walk them to trespass. Point to goal. Tell them when it, tell them that it happened. And then when you're ready, take a picture. Then remember, the picture is taken. The lens receives light for every dance in your ribs and bump. For every burn before suits. There's a song. Sleep, stand up, miss every amber. Kick and stretch wood. Declare yourself safe from the tip of the hold you clean all white, a counter scout, all yours. Bite every night. There's yours. Sitting your name. Jackets, just see. Agents, close sage. Absent lovers in rooms, and they don't. Not there. The ghost, shame, could have done things. Big things, like six flags, matching Nike suits. In the past, warmth and short supply. Say fire for the kindling, not the cuffing of your comforts. Gather every lie you told. Breathing with your eyes, toss it to stop, face them, and purpose how blessed they are to reach you. Release what cannot grow. Equinox Prayer.
by Seed Lynn. And on that note, <laughs> with much more to digest, my name is Okara Imani, and as ever, I'm just happy to be here.